Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. On this episode, we're joined by Peter Rice. Peter is the editor of Downtown Albuquerque News in Albuquerque, New Mexico. He's been a reporter for both print outlets and local NPR stations and has written multiple books. Downtown Albuquerque News is what it says it is. It's a digital news outlet serving downtown Albuquerque and surrounding neighborhoods. Hyperlocal News. Peter, thank you for joining me. Great to be here. Thanks so much. What's your journalism origin story as far back as you can go? (laughs) I can go back to about age 13. I grew up in Olympia, Washington, and I was a homeschooler. So that... That afforded some opportunities to spend a lot of time volunteering at a local college radio station. And I, I did some music programming with them, but mostly it was it was kind of a local news focus there. So that was, I mean, it was some terrific experience. I basically spent late middle school and all of high school just wandering around a, a smallish town in the Pacific Northwest doing stories about stuff for uh, for a radio station. In a former time, I might have actually just graduated from high school and skipped college and had gone straight into journalism, but that's not quite how it uh, went. But it was a it was a great head start. Was there anything in your heritage or upbringing that would have lent itself to being a storyteller? Um, I think my dad, probably. He He has this personality that likes to suck up every bit of information he can possibly get. I mean, he's actually quite bad at making decisions, for example, but uh, his personality is such that he will, when asked any question, offer a very nuanced and subtle analysis of, of the thing. So I grew up having that as kind of my, my chat GPT, if you will, <laughs> of the time. And, and so, and it turns out that that is, that is an extremely journalistic model of thinking. So I'm sure that that got hardwired in, in some fashion or another. So that's a cool inherited trait. And we're going to talk more about your dad in a little bit, but first, can you walk us through some of your early work highlights, maybe in terms of where you worked and notable lessons that you would have learned in each of those spots that I referenced before? Sure. So I guess, yeah, the, the, as a teenager in high school, I got kind of the basics that would have been journalism 101. I went to college in Colorado and did a, did a series of internships there. I, you know, I call that kind of journalism 201. It was still kind of the, the basics of, you know, getting oriented in the, in the trade. After college is probably when it got real. I got a my first full-time job on the Oregon coast at a small twice weekly paper. Uh, and it was a really good paper. Like one of these, one of these old school, just excellent community newspapers where you could really see the, the journalism contributing to the, the town's circulatory system and, and civic life and, and community life. Um, I had this interesting experience a couple of months in where I was at this meeting and I saw a guy carrying a clipping of an article I had, I had written and he walked right up to Congressman Peter DeFazio, tucked it in his shirt pocket and kind of ordered him to read it. And that was, you know, that was kind of an interesting 
moment where it's like, oh, this is, you know, this is real now. It's, uh, this is kind of the the power of journalism, if you want to borrow a cliche. But there was, in that town, there was a lot more other, a lot of other kind of smaller scale examples. I'd constantly be in meetings and whenever anybody wanted to get the word out about anything, their first go-to was somebody would say, oh yeah, we, we got to put this in the paper. Um, it, it, as though they worked on the paper, right? Like they had such an ownership of it <laughs> that they had no, they, they had no doubt that they would, they would send it to the paper. It would get in the paper and it would contribute to the conversation. And that was, that was kind of how it worked in, in that town. And it was, it was amazing to watch and, and participate in. From there, I got to Albuquerque in 2006 uh, and worked for a, a Metro Daily there that is, has since gone out of business. The big lesson of that time was that Metro Dailies really had no idea what the hell they were doing <laughs> and, and would be going down in flames very shortly. And in fact, my, my arrogant little prediction in my early 20s proved to be completely true. So after that, I kind of, I left, I went traveling, I worked a bunch of other random jobs. I got a journeyman electrician's license at one point. Um, and I just kind of sat there waiting, waiting for the industry to get its act together, pretty much. What was the the article that the congressman was given? Oh, it was about it was about transit funding. <laughs> it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't anything special, but gotcha. Yeah, it was just a little 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 financial crisis the local uh, shuttle run by the senior center was having and but definitely uh, meaningful to show that that as you were saying before that your work has has considerable value to to these people and is important yeah and you know you grow up hearing about stuff like that but until you see it it's not it's not it doesn't really sink in and that i think was the first time i really saw you know something i was involved in being part of a of a policy conversation, even if it's in a very small way. So downtown Albuquerque news comes after all of that. What's the origin story for that? Well, the origin story is that I was waiting for the industry to get its act together and they never did. Um, <laughs> I was, I had all, going back to the mid two thousands, I had always assumed that newspapers would evolve into a paid subscription, digital delivery model with, little to no emphasis on advertising. And I assumed that because the demand certainly wasn't a problem. Like people still really liked local news and, and you know, in fact, still to this day. And people were used to paying for that news. So it seemed like the sensible capitalist thing to do to just get them to pay for a much lower overhead product given that ads had had very little future and you know anyone paying attention could have told you that in in 2004 2005 so i thought that was a relatively easy transition for them to make but of course they didn't make it and they instead insisted on slowly killing themselves over the over the 2010s i got increasingly ticked off and scared for the future of self government and and so in 2019, I basically did what I thought they should have been doing all along and started a, a for-profit local news service that has a, a serious paywall. It covers just two zip codes. And four years later, it's it's working pretty well. We have we've 550 subscribers, give or take. 
and a very secure financial position at this point. So it's been a it's been a great experience all around. So it's your full time thing. Yes. So we talk of family owned newspapers. That was the thing as in the in the good times. Yours is a family owned newsletter, a family working newsletter in full force. Explain who's on your staff. Sure. Yeah. So it started out as me and my wife, who is the kind of copy editor slash editorial sounding board, if you will. She likes to likes to analyze news items and is a is an engaged downtown area resident in her own right. Eventually, I started picking up freelancers to do odd articles here and there. Once once the you know. The first year, the money wasn't great, but then things started to improve in year two and three and whatnot. And that worked out okay. But when I when I finally got in a position where I wanted somebody to contribute on a on a very regular basis as as a freelancer, that's right about when my dad retired from his job in in city government back in Washington State. And so he, you know, he wanted some some extra part-time work. And I, at that point, had the money to give it to him. So he's been he's been with us for about a year and a half. And, and that's been going great. My sister does a few odd jobs now and again. My mom has yet to do anything for, for the publication, but I'm, I'm sure that's just a matter of time. What makes the the downtown Albuquerque area so interesting to cover? Like, what are the characteristics of the area? Yeah, downtown Albuquerque in particular is a really interesting journalistic beat. And that is in part because it has a lot going against us or against it. Like a lot of American downtowns, it was hollowed out by suburbanization over the past several decades. It's been hit pretty hard by homelessness and crime. And as if that wasn't bad enough, COVID pretty well, as if that wasn't bad enough, the, the few crumbs we had coming in from, from the commuter class kind of evaporated during COVID and, and have only come back to you know maybe 50% of their, their former capacity. So there's a lot running against us, but there's actually a lot of inspiring people still here who are trying to make it a lot better so there's there it seems like we've got a a good group of people who are who are trying to to revitalize things and really want to make it work and of course downtowns everywhere are sort of famous for attracting pretty quirky people and that tends to make journalism fun and then as to this larger redevelopment project um you know, we've had some false summits on this before, like people have been trying to revitalize downtown for a long time, but it really wouldn't surprise me if if in two to five years, it actually starts to take. The city's doing quite a lot to to set it up for success, and there seems to be a decent chance that it will it will actually take off, and that uh, that is fun to cover, the prospect, and if it actually does take off, that'll be even more fun to cover, so it's uh, it's a great journalism project all along and the and the surrounding neighborhoods are are pretty uh, pretty fun too. You said that it's great to cover. You mentioned the quirky people and the interesting things. I heard you do another interview where you referred to what you wanted to do as people you know, stuff you can walk to. 
So within one of these weekly newsletters that you do, what's the overarching goal? Yeah, so the I guess I guess if we want to start with the broad philosophical stuff, it's it's we want people to take a well-informed interest in their surroundings and in local government. So in any given week, hopefully there's something about, you know, what the city is doing, what businesses are doing, what civic and cultural groups are doing. And also something fun involving a common touch point. And that that's that's kind of where the people you know and stuff you can walk to idea comes in. It's it's things that we all recognize and are curious about. So like there's a there's a hotel here that has a marquee and it's being it's being redeveloped. So they're not using the marquee at the moment. So this arts group has taken it over and is putting little bits of poetry and sayings on it. And they're they're sort of inexplicable unless you know the background. So <laughs> I've been I've been kind of covering what they're what they've been up to there. And that's, you know, that kind of you know wraps it all up. There's there's a lot of stories like that that are just, you know, interesting people doing interesting things. And we haven't even gotten to the, you know, the big redevelopment projects who's, you know, who's building an apartment complex here or you know, some kind of cultural facility there. Just those 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 things we see and can touch and can walk to and all feel like we have some kind of stake in. Um, that is uh, that that's kind of the the people you know and stuff you can walk to philosophy. That's that's what gives you your overall balanced news diet. So the thing that you just said there about the the marquee and the different phrases that brings me back to college, where we had an athletic director who, in his message that he would send out at the start of every athletic season would quote an opera or would quote some obscure musical reference. <laughs> and you couldn't figure that out, like why he was doing that until you actually talked to him and he explained his artistic tastes and music tastes and things of that sort. So I'm just curious, how did the that story turn out with regards to the marquee? It was actually kind of difficult because <laughs> so these these so what they were doing, they were putting they were putting sayings just like in Spanish on one side of the marquee and then weird English translations or some other kind of response to that on the other side of the marquee. So I couldn't figure this out. And I, I you know, I know enough Spanish to know something was a little off kilter about it. So I, I, I called up the building's owner and they literally told me they had no idea what this was. So I've got a I've got a building owner who doesn't know what's going on on their marquee. So we just kind of did a did a eh, gee I wonder what's up with this story. Talked to a, a native Spanish speaker who dissected exactly what was a little weird about about what was going on there, and then left it be for a couple of months until I stumbled upon some some evidence. On online that this particular arts group may have been responsible for it. So I, I tracked them down. It wasn't a guerrilla thing or anything like that. They, they got permission from the city who's like involved in the funding of the redevelopment. So it wasn't, you know, it's not, they're not sneaking around doing this or anything, but, but so they kind of, they kind of explained what, what was going on. I mean, it's a cool little project. It's, it's, they're taking a bunch of random sayings that local residents 
kind of have embedded in their their memory and primarily ones that don't quite translate into English. So I, I, I could go into the Spanish analysis here, but it's, it's, uh, it's stuff that just doesn't quite fit in the other language. So it's, the whole thing is supposed to be this meditation on bicultural, bilingual living. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a great little project. Nice. But that, but that's cool though. That's like local mysteries, lo things that are of local interest. When we talked to someone doing like a, a hyper-local thing in Charlottesville, Virginia, they mentioned that the top story that they had done was about a bathroom being installed at a, a local you know, shopping plaza. Those are the things that people care about, in addition to the local government stories and the important things that are going on. There, there are ways to draw people in with both. So I saw on in some of your online samples that you showed me stories about new businesses, what's happening with parking in different areas seemed to be a big theme. You had some history features, and then you had Inspector Dan, which is a local, trying to answer questions and review public facilities as if they were restaurants. Where do you get yes. all your story ideas? And, and tell us about that one in particular. Sure. Uh, story ideas are really not hard to find. Um, a lot of people just email them too, because anytime anyone's curious about something these days, they will they will email me. A lot. A lot of it's like, hey, what's going? It seems like there's some construction going on on this thing. What's you know, what is that? Like, what's the what's the new restaurant, or why did the old restaurant go out of business? Things like that. So yeah, basically you know, or, or changes to public infrastructure, broader trends are stories, but anything people might talk about with their neighbor across the street or over the fence, that's probably a good hyperlocal news story, you know, and then there's, there's, you know, what the government is up to too, which, you know, happens, happens in these stuffy meeting rooms, but also has a lot of relevance that, that goes right back to those those things you can see and touch and walk over to. So when it comes to Inspector Dan, gosh, that actually that actually evolved out of Detective Dan. And there's a slight difference there. Detective Dan is just answering reader questions. So they'll say, like, hey, what's what's going on with this construction project? And then we'll then we'll answer it. So that's a popular feature. But then it kind of evolved into the idea that we have these bits of government infrastructure all over the place whether it's parks or the the you know these these very prominent bus stops we have along our main street here and they're a big part of our life and a lot of times they're not in great shape but it's hard to have a news story about that right like news is normally something that changes so i was trying to find a way to kind of spotlight that and then, I don't know, at some point it occurred to me that it it might be fun to review government infrastructure as though it were a restaurant. <laughs> and so and so we did. I hired I hired a guy to go around. I mean, he's he he used to collect data for the federal government and before he retired. So he's he's good at you know getting a clipboard and and making uh, you know tisk 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 noises when he when he sees too much trash at the bus stop or something like that or in or in the park. So yeah, he just kind of went around and cataloged everything that was right and everything that was wrong with with various pieces of infrastructure. So it's kind of an ongoing series that just kind of spotlights uh, things we see every day and may notice and may not, but we sure do now. 
And along those lines, something that I think kind of is similar to that is the data journalism that you do. And this reminded me of something that we had interviewed someone about in one of our earliest episodes. We're tracking like manually, literally going around. You have someone going around and tracking and counting certain things. What are you currently tracking and what would you like to be tracking maybe that you're not? Yeah, we track a lot of stuff. Bunch of bunch of random indicators. I guess in 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 several different categories, and and that's not really unlike what most reporters do. They'll they'll check in on things, uh, check in on various stats or you know the latest numbers from such and such or whatever. The difference is that we take those numbers and make them into charts and turn them into an editorial product. So on on a very regular basis, readers will get to see the latest you know river flow numbers in the rio grande you know how many people are riding the bus or the commuter train local real estate prices rental prices down to the zip code a hotel occupancy because it's a pretty big tourism industry is pretty big in in greater downtown there's even a feature we do regularly that that highlights interesting books found in mini libraries around the zone the kind of latest and greatest data feature we've been doing is a tracker on the health of the downtown core. Cause like I mentioned, there's this, there's this like ongoing, will it revitalize or will it not question that kind of hangs over the head of every greater downtown resident. And we all want to, we all want to see it happen. So this tracker follows stuff like open hours, vacancies, pedestrian counts, street parking occupancy rates, things that could, how do I put this? Um, we all want downtown to get busier and better and more attractive, but it's often hard to tell from, from you know quarter to quarter if that's actually happening. So the goal here is to measure that and, and rely less on anecdotes and and rumors. And so hopefully we can, we can tell what it's, when it's, when it's really improving. Is that you as simple as you literally going somewhere and counting? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the business hours can be done on, on Google, the vacancy stuff, you just walk around and uh, I mean, it's, it's a pain to set up, but you know, it's not, it's check in on it. uh, It's good exercise. Oh yeah, for sure. Street parking stuff. And yeah, I mean, you can tell pedestrian counts pretty easily too. I mean, just, I just plant myself down in two particular spots once a quarter and count how many people pass by in a 20 minute period between noon and one. And that's, uh, that's pretty much all there is to it. But in terms of what I would like to track, the thing that's been bugging me lately is it's really hard to know sales tax figures. And if, if, if we could localize sales tax figures, it would actually be really helpful in terms of covering a central business district and, a, and the historic district, our, our old town, because it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of hard to tell sometimes when downtown, just how productive downtowns are. They often don't look as shiny and glitzy as the rest of the city. Um, but often they are cash cows for local government. Often they are subsidizing the rest of town, even if they, they look a little rough around the edges. This is a big theme of the strong towns organization, by the way, that they do a lot of work on this, but 
so far, unfortunately, it does not appear to be possible to get highly localized sales tax data, but I am, I'm still digging. So we'll, we'll see what happens. So you get all this information, you get all these stories. What are the mechanics at work here? Is it as simple as just importing things into MailChimp, you know, picking a couple of photos or taking some photos, picking a couple of photos, plugging it in, sending it out via MailChimp or Substack or whatever your thing of choice is and collecting the, you know, the subscription rates. And you can mention what those are certainly just, yeah. What are the mechanics in terms of like the actual doing? Yeah, it's it's a it's basically as you described. It's about as low tech as as high tech gets. Yeah, it's it's Mailchimp. It's a payment platform called Moonclerk, and uh, and the my phone as a camera, and that's uh, that's pretty much it. I mean, the, we have a website, but it's it's basically just a vehicle for people to sign up, and it's subscriptions are ten bucks a month or a hundred bucks a year, but. Uh, but yeah, I sort of despise websites as a medium for <laughs> distributing local news. I think they're terrible. Um, so I, you know, newsletters are are much better in in every single way you can imagine. I think I get it, and I'm thinking back to the days of when I was like, you know, ten, eleven, twelve years old, and you know, seeing the newsletters and getting things in the mail and different sorts of things. So yeah, it it seems. It seems very cool. And you feel like you've made it into a viable business? Oh, yeah. No, I'm, we have, yeah, 550 subscribers. So, gosh, what does that work out to? I don't know. It's like when it's all said and done, it's, we're grossing 60 or 70,000, but we're growing usually by about 100, 150 subscribers a year. So, I'm paying my mortgage just fine. And I, I have dad as a kind of quarter or third time employee there. So yeah, it's it's doing great, and I think it's. It and by the way, it's doing great in an impoverished area. Our our downtown is not in great shape. The poverty rate of both of our main zip codes is significantly higher than the national average by several percentage points. Uh, I th and and yet it's doing pretty well here. I suspect it would you know it would do even better in even other more affluent parts of Albuquerque much less in other states that are that are much wealthier than New Mexico. So yeah, I'm you know, I guess I started out being kind of a arrogant little brat about this business model, but <laughs> nothing I've experienced has has checked me away from that. So who are, who are your readers? <laughs> they they tend to be people who I I guess a friend of mine described it as news nerds and professional citizens. <laughs> That's kind of the core. So, you know, people who were curious, people who would read the newspaper back in the day, and then people who have some kind of, you know, professional or, you know, financial or emotional investment in the area. Because if, you know, particularly if you're, if you're rooted in a place and you really care about it, you want it to succeed you you spend a lot of your time wandering around wondering if it's going to be okay and i think a good a good newspaper can can maybe not definitively answer that question but at least tell you if it's going in the right direction or perhaps alert you to things that are going wrong that that you might need to get involved with so yeah i mean i think it's the same people who always read newspapers or at least the news sections of newspapers 
so I think it, there's 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 always people in a society who are really curious and and people who are less so and the ones who are curious will happily pay for local news. People like me, yeah. Will you ever have ads? You don't have ads, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm morally opposed to ads. I don't think they are are a great addition. I think I think they're kind of bothersome to the mm -hmm. to the reader. It's like you don't have to sift through this nonsense. Yeah, I mean, there's obvious conflict of interest that that could could arise sure. from from having them, and I'm not really convinced. You know, given that the internet basically offers an unlimited supply of ad space, I'm not really convinced that a significant amount of money could be generated with, uh, you know, with with a small audience like what we have. So it just doesn't seem to be worth the trouble. But you know, if if somebody else wants to take this model and also incorporate ads, then yep, more power to them. Whatever whatever results in more reporters being hired. What what's the hardest part of the job? I'd say it's probably living in the coverage zone. I mean, on on one hand, it's actually not it's not a grueling job by any stretch. I hear a lot of journalists talk about their jobs as being as being just insane and super stressful. And it's not. I mean, I've I've rigged it up so, you know, we, I get plenty of time off. Dad gets plenty of time off. Um and the the usual typical work week. I mean, some weeks weeks are busier than others, but typically it's just a normal job. You know, it's you know, 40, 45 hours a week and and that's about it. But but in terms of you know the difficulty, I mean, and this is a blessing and a curse. Living living in your coverage zone has all sorts of advantages, but it does mean that random errands can feel like work. <laughs> I, I kind of feel like you know, like, oh, what's going on over there? I need to do a story about I was going to say, and... can you turn it off? No. <laughs> <laughs> yep, I... Well, and then you meet other people too. It's it's like, I know way too, there are like coffee shops in this coverage zone I cannot walk into unless I want to be like Mr. On Reporter. I can't like roll in there in my pajamas or anything like that. But luckily, luckily there's an easy fix for this and it's called going to your friend's house out of the coverage zone and having a barbecue. So <laughs> I do that a lot. <laughs> well, I, I was going to ask what you, what you do. And I, I had read that bicycling is a big thing for you too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I, I do tend to bicycle usually to that friend's house <laughs> nice. where, where there is barbecue and, and martinis. So how has journalism impacted how you view the world? I'd say it's probably completely warped it beyond all recognition. <laughs> it's really kind of hard to to answer that because I I mean I was I was in a very journalistic frame of mind from from age twelve or thirteen and I don't know before that I was basically just interested in in like train sets and stuff like that. So <laughs> yeah, I I'd say. If there is if there is an iron law of journalism, it's probably that things are usually more complicated than they appear. So what I would like to think is that journalism has has made me a little bit more of a, a nuanced thinker and slightly less of an idiot, but I guess I'll leave that for others to <laughs> others to decide. So a couple of things here to close. I want to ask for some advice within creating a startup newsletter in someone else's town. It seems like everyone has a sub stack these days. You can use MailChimp. 
which you're doing as well. There are differences between the two. And I'd be curious when you're giving that advice with that, is there a mistake along the way that you made that you think that people could learn from that might want to do this? Sure. So, I mean, if you're starting up, I'd say, I'd say the one really important thing that people tend to ignore is to find a town or more commonly a part of a town that has a coherent sense of itself and some common interests. That may be an entire city, but that is not the case, for example, in Albuquerque, where we have very little in common with people who live on the other side of the river. I mean, we share a mayor, but you know, like not much else in terms of, of outlook and day-to-day and -day life and interests. So make your coverage zone something that, that has an identity already. And then I'd say strongly consider uh, charging money for your publication. <laughs> uh, I, the, the trend seems to be all donations all the time. And on one hand, it's always inspiring to see somebody go out and start something like that. But on the other hand, people value the things that they pay for more than the things that they don't pay for. Uh, and the paid subscription model is more scalable. It's less time consuming because you don't have to be fundraising all the time. And it's probably, it's probably our best hope to returning to those days when when a very strong local news media could could really promote a sense of community and prod the government into doing a better job. And I, I, you know, not to be melodramatic here, but I don't think we can afford to unilaterally disarm like that. We've got to, we've got to be a well-capitalized industry if we're going to be a truly free press. So yeah, definitely charge money for it if you possibly can. In terms of mistakes I've learned, I I started doing downtown Albuquerque news having kind of inherited this Metro Daily competition mindset because we were one of two papers in town. This was back in the mid-2000s. And we were constantly had it hammered into us that we needed to we needed to beat our competition and and get the story first and things like that. And we were we were obsessed with that. And in retrospect, I think that was an insecurity born of the fact that we did not have any particular special value to offer readers in, in the Albuquerque media equation. We were not following Loretta Lynn's famous rule that you need to be first, best, or different. We did not really have our niche. And unfortunately, I think I carried that internal psychodrama over to the first year or two of, of running Dan, and that was... That was a dumb thing to do because it turns out that if you are indeed first, best, or different, and in the case of Dan, that's mostly different, then people will appreciate it. And, and you know, if they can't get it anywhere else and they want it, they'll pay for it. Readers, I've learned, care a lot less about how journalists compete with each other than journalists do, and we should probably take our cues from them. Yes, very much so. I'm, I'm familiar with that on the sports side. So we salute you for your good work, and we ask that you do likewise. Is there a journalist or journalism organization that you're not affiliated with that you would like to salute for their good work? Yes, I would like to salute the New Mexico Foundation for Open Government. They are they lobby. It's a group. They lobby and sometimes take legal action on behalf of press freedom and access to public records. 
it is it is the sort of support structure that journalism really needs and not to beat a dead horse here but that is also a reason we need to get our financial act together in this business because a free press is about a lot more than dedication and pluck we really really need aggressive packs of expensive foaming at the mouth lawyers and lobbyists and lobbyists backing us up here so the fog does a great job and but they need more money <laughs> so they they need a stronger industry to to get them that money so but uh, they do a, they do excellent work so I know that they're an important organization because I've had two guests from New Mexico, you and Inez Russell Gomez, and you both uh -huh. said the same. You both saluted the same place. Oh, did we? Oh, yes. okay. So, That's terrific. Good call. <laughs> uh, Peter Rice, Downtown Albuquerque News. We want to just give a plug as to where people can find it. Sure, it's downtownalbuquerquenews.com. Cool. Peter Rice, thank you for taking the time to join us. Best of luck with your uh, publication, and we will be following it closely. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at JournalismSalute at gmail.com.